I wish I was going with them. <laughs> there we are. Um, in the lovely book of Isaiah, I think in many ways Isaiah and Matthew have very close links, but uh, there's some very well-known uh, verses talking about Jesus. It says, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, our simple prayer is this. Thank you for Jesus, our King. Thank you that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And Heavenly Father, those of us who are part of it are so very, very grateful. We know it's all of your grace and mercy, and we give you grateful thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I keep banging on about this when I stand up to speak, but I keep banging on about it because it's important. Uh, but you'll know that uh, in the earlier chapters, Matthew gives us a record of the birth of Jesus and shows how Jesus was the promised son of David, Messiah, Christ, God's anointed king. Uh, and Jesus' message was, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You'll know that we've learned that the kingdom of heaven is a now and a not yet kingdom. It's the kingdom of grace now and the kingdom of glory hereafter. It's the kingdom of grace here and now, a kingdom that we followers of Jesus live in. We live under God's grace now. Eternal life actually starts for us now. Things look different for us now. We're born again now. We have a different set of desires now uh, to those we had before. We are part of God's glorious kingdom of heaven now. But it's also that kingdom of uh, glory hereafter, uh, the kingdom when Jesus returns at the consummation of all things and takes us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, because Jesus entered our world as a human being. One of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, because Jesus uh, came, that's why the kingdom of heaven is here now. And Jesus, as you know, is the king of that kingdom. And he speaks and acts with kingdom authority. Uh, last week, you'll remember that Jesus had been speaking to the disciples of John the Baptist, and his conversation with them was interrupted. Uh, verse 18 of our passage, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come, put your hand on her and she will live. Uh, the synagogue leader came to him in a state of great distress, I think, and, and great desperation. Uh, uh, this man was uh, very important. He was much uh, respected in the community. The synagogue, of course, was a place where the Jewish people gathered for worship and teaching. 
And the synagogue leader was the man who had been chosen by the elders of the synagogue uh, to keep order there when meetings took place. He saw to the upkeep of the building. He supervised its times of worship. He chose men to read the scriptures or to pray or to teach the people. Jesus, you know, was sometimes in conflict with synagogue leaders. Uh, When Jesus healed someone in the synagogue on the Sabbath, one synagogue leader was very angry that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He told uh, the congregation there, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath day. That was, of course, a very silly thing for him to say. He was a bit hypocritical, really. But it shows us how important the synagogue leader was. It was his job to make sure that things were done decently and in order and in line with uh, the teaching of the scriptures. Uh, So it's actually quite remarkable uh, that this synagogue leader came to Jesus at all. Uh, And he didn't try to meet Jesus secretly at night. He came to Jesus openly And he knelt before him, he knelt at Jesus' feet. Uh, And for the ruler of the synagogue to kneel at Jesus' feet was a a tremendous witness, you know, to what this man believed about Jesus. He he must have heard uh, of the things that Jesus had been doing uh, and his act of worship before Jesus uh, shows what he believed about the things that he'd heard. Uh, This man was special. Um, This man had great power. Uh, And this man, this synagogue leader, he was desperate. He he was pleading with Jesus to come and help him. He said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Just consider this man's faith in Jesus. Just put your hand on her and she'll live. He must have heard that Jesus had healed others, how he'd reached out his hand and touched the leper we read about in chapter 8, and how the man's leprosy was immediately uh, cleansed. Perhaps he'd heard about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. You remember she was uh, sick in bed with a, a fever, and how Jesus just touched her hand and the fever left her. Uh, Think about all the other things that the synagogue leader must have heard about Jesus. And he was convinced that if Jesus would simply come and lay his hand on his daughter, she too would uh, live. Uh, And verse 19 we read, Jesus got up and went with him, uh, and so did his disciples. You know, Jesus has great compassion for people. If you're in trouble, Jesus has great compassion uh, for you. He never turns away, you know, anyone who comes to him uh, in faith. He's on his way. And then in verse 20 we read, Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. Now put yourself in the synagogue leader's shoes for a moment. He's desperate. He's very anxious. (laughs) 
He's trusted Jesus for help, but he wants that help now. And you can imagine he must have been quite frustrated, actually, uh, as Jesus stops to meet the need of someone else. Think about this poor woman. She was actually quite desperate as well. She'd had this uh, uh, affliction for 12 years. Uh, Can you imagine the impact on her physically? I don't know much about this. I spoke to my wife. She said this lady would have been very, very tired, uh, drained, worn out because of the loss of blood. We're not told what the nature of uh, her affliction was. It may have been a very private nature, and that would have made her ceremonially unclean. She'd have had to have been set apart uh, from society. Um, Anyone that she touched would have been considered unclean until the evening. Everything she uh, uh, laid on or sat on would be considered unclean as well. And whoever touched those things after that would also be unclean until evening. So this was a big issue for this lady. She would actually have been quite an outcast. She'd have been unable to join the cultural and uh, social and religious life of her people for 12 long years. This woman and the synagogue leader had something in common. Uh, Both of them had come to the end of their own resources. They had nowhere else to go, you know, but to Jesus and to hope for his compassion and his mercy. Both of them had heard about Jesus and there was no hope anywhere else. So they sought him out. There's an old hymn. I love singing the modern hymns here. uh, But uh, old hymns still have something, you know. And it says this, When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. And I believe that because of her condition, the woman didn't ask Jesus for help publicly. She wasn't sure how people would react to this unclean woman pushing her way through the crowd that was around Jesus. Think about her faith in him. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Perhaps she didn't dare think of touching Jesus himself or asking him to touch her. But she felt sure that if she could just touch his clothing, uh, it would be enough. And so, driven by her faith in Jesus' power to heal, she approaches him kind of from behind and reached out and touched his clothing as he passed by. Uh, There was a crowd of people around Jesus. Now, actually, if I'm in a big crowd and somebody touches my jacket, I wouldn't have noticed Um, But this was a touch of faith. And I think Jesus always notices those who have faith in him. Uh, And we should be encouraged, you know. Uh, We can't physically reach out and touch Jesus with our hand, but we can reach out and touch him with our prayers. And when we pray in faith, he always notices. And he always answers 
It might not be the answer that we want, but it is an answer of wisdom and love and compassion. Look how he noticed this woman. Jesus turned and saw her. Look how tenderly and lovingly Jesus speaks to her. Take heart, daughter, he says. Your faith has healed you. He calls her daughter. It's a term of endearment. He tells her to take heart. She was without hope. She was desperate. She was afraid. And he was calling her to confidence and courage, that she was no longer an outcast among her people, that her uncleanness had been taken from her. And he told her what she didn't understand at first, that it was her faith in him that had made her well. Perhaps she thought it was something to do with touching his garment, but it was really a matter of her having come to him in faith. Her touch was an expression of her faith in him, and it was Jesus himself who healed her. We read, don't we? And the woman was healed at that very moment. Let me make just one more point about that. The words Jesus used, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you, can literally be translated, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Could it be that Jesus also saved this woman's soul in that process of healing her physically? Well, she had a faith that he could heal her. And as we can see, her story has become part of uh, the God's gospel record forever recorded for us in three of the four gospels, actually, uh, that we have in our Bible. Jesus' words to this woman are words of gospel encouragement. They're words that every sinner who truly comes to the end of themselves and who reaches out to Jesus in faith can take heart from. Uh, Take heart, your faith has saved you. What words of encouragement they must have been to this poor woman. What words of encouragement they ought to be towards. What words of encouragement we have for a lost and a broken world that needs to hear about how they can be saved. And while Jesus was uh, caring for this woman, the synagogue leader, he must have been pacing up and down and getting quite anxious about things. Um, But Jesus, I believe, had performed this faith-building act in front of the synagogue leader, But his unique concern, the synagogue leader's unique concern, was still to be met. The interruption by this woman and the delay caused, I believe, was part of the plan all along. It was Jesus' intention not only to meet the need of this poor woman, but also to do so right in front of the synagogue leader, to encourage his faith in Jesus, that he could indeed raise his daughter from the dead. In verse 23 we read, when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, they finally made their way to the synagogue leader's house. The mourners were there. Professional mourners were used to show a family's grief for the dead. They played flutes and they wailed. 
Uh, I think if you see some of the scenes in Aleppo and round there, you will see uh, people crying out in uh, grief, uh, even today. Um, even a very poor family would be expected to have uh, uh, two flute players and somebody wailing uh, if uh, someone died in their family. But just imagine a synagogue leader, he's, a, he's an important man, he's probably got quite a bit of money, so it would be a, a pretty big crowd there, very noisy crowd there, mourning. And when Jesus saw this, he says something remarkable. Uh, verse 24, go away, <laughs> go away, I don't want you here. The girl is not dead, but asleep. Now clearly the girl was dead, but Jesus says she wasn't dead. Why does he say that? Why does he say she's only sleeping? The girl had truly died, but Jesus says that she's asleep because that's how he sees the death of those he is about to bring back to life. When he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he told his disciples, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him up. And his disciples, as they often did, misunderstood him. They said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. He had to explain to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But then he went to the tomb to raise him. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And now he's about to be the resurrection and the life to this man's daughter. And the mourner's reaction was this. And they laughed at him. They knew, they knew this girl was dead. That word laughed, it means they mocked and derided him. Not dead? What do you mean? They switched from their mournful wailing to actually insulting laughter and scorn at Jesus. And that, so often, even today, is the response of unbelief to Jesus and his power. They weren't laughing for long, though, were they? And they weren't mourning for long, either. Verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. You see, Jesus doesn't look at those who were mocking them, uh, tell them to follow him into the girl's room and watch this. Uh, they'd see something that would end their mockery. Jesus doesn't put on shows for unbelievers. He protects the girl's dignity, and he put all the mourners outside. I think they wouldn't be very happy, you know, uh, they may not have le left uh, willingly or graciously because the words put outside suggest that he ejected them with some firmness, like a bouncer ejecting people from a nightclub. Out you go. They don't want to go, but out you go. Um, if you're going to mock, well, mock outside, not in here, where he was going to raise this girl. And mourners weren't needed anyway, not when the Lord of life was present. Matthew tells us what happened in very simple terms. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. It seems to be effortless for Jesus to heal the girl. A touch from his hand, and her life was restored. And then verse 26 says, 
News of this spread through all that region. She became a very famous young lady, but that was because she'd been touched by an even more famous saviour. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, calling, Have mercy on us, son of David. Notice what they believed about Jesus himself. They called him son of David. Clearly, these two blind men understood who Jesus was, this long-awaited Messiah, Christ, King, the promised offspring of King David, mentioned in that little passage in Isaiah, the anointed king from God, whose kingdom, whose reign will be forever uh, Matthew introduces us to Jesus in verse 1 chapter of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Actually, in the Gospel of Matthew, these, are the fir- these two blind men are the first to call him by that name. Well, they may have been blind, but these two blind men saw more clearly than most other people around. And notice how it was their understanding of who Jesus was that motivated them to seek his mercy. Verse 28, when he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him. Look at how they showed their faith in him. They cried out to him. They asked for mercy from him. He went into a house and they followed him. They wouldn't give up. And the reason for their persistence is because they knew with unshakable confidence that because of who he is, he could heal them of their blindness. Um, When he asked them, do you believe I'm able to do this? They answered very positively, yes, Lord, they said. No ifs, no buts with these two blind men. No qualifications, just a simple, straightforward, yes, Lord, we believe that you can do it. And it's that kind of faith to which Jesus responded. Uh, Notice the way that the blind men approached Jesus. When Jesus asked if they believed he could do it, they said, yes, Lord. And it's that last word, Lord, lets us know what they understood about him. They recognized that as Lord, the choice was his. It was up to him to heal them, or not to heal them. And if he chose to heal them, it was up to him how it would be done. He could have said, according to your faith, let it be to you. Go to your doctor, and he I'll grant success uh, to his care for you. You know, sometimes people put their faith in the wrong thing. They place their faith in faith, rather than their faith in the Lord Jesus. But our faith is never to be in faith itself, but only in Jesus, who is sovereign, who acts towards us according to his own will, with wisdom and love and authority, whatever his answer to us is. To demand that Jesus heals or that he answers any request we make in a specific kind of way that we require is to treat faith as a kind of lever we pull to get the result that we want. And when we do that, we fail to recognize Jesus as Lord. And these two men, these two blind men, give us a great example of faith. 
See, their faith was not in the power of faith, rather in the power of Jesus as Lord. And that makes their faith a bold and Christ-honoring faith. Jesus clearly knew what mercy they wanted. When they came to him, he didn't ask, what do you want me to do for you? He said, without asking what they wanted, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And he has them confess their faith publicly. They stand before him and say, yes, Lord. It's as though they say, we truly believe that you are the son of David, God in human flesh, and that it's in your power to give sight to the blind, just as the scriptures say you'll be able to. Sometimes we don't always see immediate answers to our prayers. Perhaps that's because Jesus is seeking to draw out of us a clear testimony of our faith in him. Uh, Perhaps he's uh, making his work at it because he wants us to get to the point where we trust in nothing but him personally as Lord first. Truly see him for who he really is. Perhaps we don't always get what we're asking for right away because we're not asking with the right kind of faith in him yet. Perhaps we don't get immediate answers because we're not asking in accordance with his sovereign will. Perhaps we have a need and it seems as if Jesus doesn't hear. Could it be he's making us work at it for a reason? Then Jesus touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their sight was restored. The result is quite obvious. The two men received what they asked for. They could see. But notice what Jesus says next. Jesus warned them sternly. See that no one knows about this. Why would he say that? Uh, Perhaps Jesus wanted no one to know about it because even bigger crowds of people would surround him so that he'd no longer be able to move around. Verse 31 says this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And just five verses on in verse 36, uh, we see that Jesus then saw the multitudes. It must have got to the point that he could hardly walk across the street because of the great crowds. These two blind men, they received the compassion and the mercy of Jesus, and then they disobeyed him. (laughs) We can't condone what they did, but perhaps they were just exploding with joy over what Jesus had done for them. And who are we to point the finger? He told them to keep quiet about him, and yet they broadcast the news all over the place. He commands us to tell everyone, and yet we so often keep quiet, don't we? Notice that in telling everyone, uh, they didn't tell everyone about themselves. They spread the news about Jesus all over the region. They talked about Jesus because it was by faith in Jesus that they could now see. And then in verse 32, whilst they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. This happened while they were going out. Uh, it, It happened as Jesus and his disciples left the house they were in, where Jesus had just healed these two blind men 
who had come to him. Think of the context. Jesus just healed two blind men, but in the sight of eyewitnesses, he'd also healed a leper of leprosy. He'd healed a centurion's servant with just a word. He'd healed Peter's mother-in-law from her fever. He'd spent an evening actually healing all who were sick or demon-possessed. He healed a sick woman when she merely touched the hem of his garment, and he'd even raised a young girl from the dead. See, Jesus didn't merely speak about his authority. He showed his authority. He showed that he had power over all kinds of sickness, over evil spirits, even over death itself. And verse 33, when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowds were amazed and said, nothing's been seen like this, even in Israel. But the Pharisee said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. We're told that nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. What Jesus does is unprecedented, even in the land of miracles like Israel. Uh, Jesus' miracles are such that they identify him as being more than a man. Uh, they remove any option of being neutral about him. Uh, and what's more, we see a decision being made about him. The Pharisees, who saw what he did, they couldn't deny that a miracle actually had been done. He actually cast out a demon and healed the man of his muteness before their very eyes. They couldn't deny that. A decision about Jesus was impossible to avoid. Either he's a madman, uh, an instrument of the devil, or the son of God. Well, no madman could do the things that Jesus did. So the only option before the Pharisees is either to bow down as Jesus, as God in human flesh, but they decided Jesus was an instrument of the devil. It is by the prince of demons, they said, that he drives out demons. You know, Jesus' ministry was, uh, earthly ministry, was limited in time and space. God uh, was made flesh in one individual to live one actual human life and then to die one death. Uh, and Jesus healed the brokenness of disease then, as a foretaste of the glory of the kingdom to come. When he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. These four miracles that Jesus performed and the others that we have recorded, they authenticate Jesus' ministry. They prove he is who he said he was. God's promised king. And they point to what his kingdom is like. So as we finish, I just want to look at those miracles again and see what they tell us about this king and his kingdom. Because the king and his kingdom reaches out even to the realm of death, even to those who have no hope. The first thing I want you to notice is this that this king brings life. And his kingdom is a kingdom of life. 
The two miracles involving the synagogue leader's daughter and the woman with a flow of blood both involve faith, a faith that expresses itself in apparently hopeless situations. The woman's been ill for 20 year, 12 years, sorry, but was confident that she would be healed by touching his garment. And in response, Jesus drew attention to her faith. Your faith, he says, has made you well. The synagogue's leader's faith is, is clear. He was confident that Jesus could help, even though his daughter was dead. Both miracles, you know, involved the touching of an unclean person. The woman touched Jesus' garment. Jesus touched the dead girl, taking her by the hand. Both the woman, uh, through her affliction, and the girl, because she was dead, were ceremonially unclean. But their ceremonial uncleanness symbolizes the deeper spiritual uncleanness of sin. Jesus, by his touch, identifies himself with sinners and their sin and points to his work of sin-bearing on the cross. Jesus, the King's death and resurrection, reaches to the depth of human need as he triumphs over death itself. And that triumph is foreshadowed by his ability to raise the synagogue's leader's daughter from the dead. His kingdom of glory to come is one where there will be no more death. Sin and death are defeated by the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The king brings life and his kingdom is a kingdom of life and not death. Uh, second thing I want you to notice is that the king brings light and his kingdom is a kingdom of light. Uh, the miracles involving the synagogue leader's daughter and the woman with the flow of blood both emphasize faith. If anything, faith is more prominent in this miracle uh, with the two blind men. Jesus asked them, do you believe I'm able to do this? They answered, yes, Lord. Jesus men mentioned faith again in the moment of healing. According to your faith, let it be done uh, to you. You know, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, again, blindness and sight are used symbolically to stand for unbelief and faith. God says, uh, God says to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but don't perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Matthew picks that up in chapter 4, covered that, it seems like, a long time ago. He says light has come to, in the person of Jesus. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The two blind men see the light spiritually speaking they had faith that Jesus son of David was the promised Messiah Christ King but through the emphasis on faith this physical healing is tied to the issue of spiritual healing from spiritual blindness a healing that moves people from unbelief to faith in Jesus that moves them out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of life. 
uh, sorry, light. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. The two blind men had faith in Jesus and their faith foreshadows the faith that people have when they believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that it brings. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you read in Acts, and you will be saved, you and your household. Throughout this gospel age, God the Father calls people, even today, from darkness to light through repentance and faith in his King, Jesus. So that's the second thing I want you to notice, that the King brings light and his kingdom is a kingdom of light, not a kingdom of darkness. And the final thing I want you to notice is that this King is victorious and his kingdom is a kingdom of his glorious triumph. In the healing of this mute man, think about the opposition from the Pharisees. They say, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They were opposed not only to this particular act of deliverance, but to all the healings where Jesus cast out demons. That's why they said he drives out demons, plural. The Pharisees were wrong in their judgment. But why did Jesus cast out demons so many times? The answer is that in every case, Satan and his power are defeated. And that surely points us forward to the king's decisive and ultimate deliverance from the power of Satan and death in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. That's the final thing I want you to notice, that the king is victorious. His enemies are defeated and his kingdom is a kingdom of glorious triumph. When I was preparing this, I kept thinking, I wish I had a faith like that synagogue ruler. <laughs> I wish I had a faith like that woman who reached out her hand. I wish I had faith like those two blind men. Uh, I don't know whether you've been asked. I, people have said to me, Sometimes I wish I had a faith like you have. Uh, and this afternoon, if you wished you had a saving faith uh, like, or a faith, a stronger faith like the synagogue ruler, the woman, the two blind men, uh, I don't give advice, but there are some things you could try. Um, the first is ask Jesus for it. <laughs> ask Jesus. For a saving faith or for a stronger faith. Don't try to work something up within yourself, because you can't do it. Saving faith, stronger faith, is a gift from God, you know. That's what it says. And uh, so ask him for it. Okay. And the second thing, when my faith is weak, it's usually uh, allied to the fact that I'm not reading God's word as much as I should and praying as much as I should. So, I'd just say, why not read God's word uh, and pray that Jesus would show you who he is and what he's done. We're going to sing in a minute a hymn. It's beautiful. <laughs> it says, he is the one who's held the oceans in his hand. He's the one who's numbered every 
grain of sand. He knows how many uh, uh, hairs are on your head. He's the one who felt the nails piercing his hands as he carried all my guilt and sin, all your guilt and sin. He's God eternal. And he humbled himself even to death on a cross. But that was in the past because now he is Saviour, King, risen and triumphant. Oh, and I do hope that you really do want to be a part of his kingdom. Why not ask God to give you saving faith, to increase your faith uh, as we, uh, in a moment, sing our closing song, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Behold our King. Come, let us adore him. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, what can we say? We have a king who is glorious, who is majestic, who is holy beyond our imagining. But we have a king who is full of compassion, full of compassion for those people who came to him and said, Lord, I'm at the end of my tether. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to get help. Please, will you help me? Heavenly Father, and we have a king who uses his power, his almighty power, to help those people who do come to him. Please, Heavenly Father, would you use the words of a simple man this afternoon, but in your power, in the power of the Holy Spirit, apply them to people's hearts, Father. I can't share with them how glorious your kingdom is. I can't take people into the kingdom, but Heavenly Father, you can, and please do it for your glory and your honour. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.